we're going to just take a few moments and pray, just to ask God's blessing on our time, and uh, for Him to lead us and guide us. Father, thanks for the uh, opportunity to meet. We ask God that you would help us to open uh, our hearts and our minds to what you want to say. And I pray, God, that you would challenge us tonight. I ask you that you would uh, enlighten us, and uh, just really just open us up to what you want to speak into us uh, as individuals, I pray, God, that uh, we would be met tonight by your Holy Spirit. We pray that he would teach us and that he would have his way. If we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. amen. All right. We're going to be looking into Ephesians, back to Ephesians, uh, chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3 and... We can start in verses 8, 9, and 10 of Ephesians chapter 3. If someone would like to read that when you get to it, uh, you're more than welcome to do that. Read it out loud, I mean. Although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given me to preach the gent- to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery which for ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things. His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. All right, thanks for reading that. Uh, There's a couple of parts of that we're going to highlight tonight. I'm not going to go through every word of it, but uh, just basically Paul, as he... We're going to speak here. He refers to himself, and he does this a number of times in his epistles, that he is less than the least of all of God's people. And he referred to himself a couple times, or the least of the apostles, as one born out of time, or whatever it is you know he's talking about there. Uh, but the whole idea that he was given a privilege, I, and, and I think sometimes we major on him why was he being so humble? Well, why not? Why was he uh, talking down about himself? What else is he supposed to do? I mean, the fact of the matter was he was writing these letters to the churches because they wanted to hear from him most of the time. They valued what he had to say. And so he had already proven himself. He had proven his ministry. If you read through the book of Acts, there, there are accounts of when he visited these churches, at least a lot of them. And so you can see some of the things he did, some of the ways that God used him, and, and in, in powerful ways, and in ways that we weren't even recorded, that we don't know how God used him. But the, the bottom line was the people knew who he was. He wasn't writing his letters to impress them so that they would listen to him. He really didn't have anything to prove. If they were going to listen to him, they were going to. If they didn't, then they weren't. And that's how it goes. So he writes this, and and I think more importantly than concerning ourselves with, okay, well then why would he say these things about himself or whatever? I mean, there's different theories, different thoughts as to why he kept referring to himself that way. Uh, Most of them center around his beginnings. Uh, He wasn't with the other apostles, with Jesus. In fact, he wasn't with Jesus when Jesus was in the flesh at all that we know of. Uh, he came around later, and his whole purpose for coming around the church was to put them in jail and see that they were put to death. 
And so he had made his decisions about Christ and decided what he was going to believe and he was living out those convictions until on a road to Damascus, Jesus confronted him and he changed his ways. But if you consider how he became a Christian, if you consider how he was brought to that conclusion, uh, it's kind of interesting that in the way that he saw himself, he wasn't there when Jesus was alive. He wasn't there for the crucifixion. He wasn't there on the day of Pentecost. Uh, and he, in fact, spent his time and much of his effort seeing to the confinement and death of the early church until Jesus himself stopped him from doing it. So is it do, do, is that easy to, to begin to understand how he saw himself a little bit? I don't think he's down on himself. I think he's just recognizing where he came in. I think he's recognizing the circumstances by which he became a Christian and he was now in the church. And I think that deep down inside he knew and he understood and he really believed that it was a work of grace that brought him to the place that he was at. That he was willing to actually believe that, accept that, and live that. I don't believe that Paul thought he was doing God a favor. And I think a lot of our issues that we have in the way that we come into our relationship with Christ, I think we face a lot of issues because I think sometimes deep down inside, somewhere, somehow, we're thinking we're doing God a favor somehow. And it's just not the case. Some of us live lives where we were anti-Christ before we came to know Christ. Some of us were actually in opposition to the work of the gospel. And so we came at this from a whole different side of what God was doing. Even people who were born into Christian families that didn't live uh, for Christ in those families. I mean, where are we coming from in this? Even if we were born into a Christian family and we serve God in the church our whole lives, are we ever, ever doing God a favor by serving Him? No, we're not. And that's a really bad way to see things because what that begins to breed in us is an attitude of entitlement. An attitude where God owes us or God should do this or God should do that or this is how our life is supposed to be or whatever. And when it doesn't turn out that way, we become bitter. And this is one of those moments that we can really see things differently if we choose to. It's one of those moments that we can really come at this from a different perspective if we were to choose to. And Paul is illustrating a different way to come at this. He's illustrating a different way to see this. And so he comes at it, well, the least of God's servants. That's the way he chose to see himself. But then to contrast that with the grace that was poured out or the privilege that he was given to preach on the benefits of knowing Jesus. Because if you're, if you're going to preach on the benefits of knowing Jesus, Paul was eminently qualified to talk about that because his whole life changed his whole life was different 
because of knowing Jesus. The course that he'd been taking in his life was turned around because of knowing Jesus. His whole outlook on what God was doing in the world, his whole outlook on how God was interacting with man, his whole outlook on his purpose in life, his whole outlook on the people that he identified with, his whole outlook on what he was going to believe changed because he knew Jesus. All that changed. His actions, his attitude, the way that he saw the world, the way that he saw himself changed because he had a relationship, he knew Jesus. And so he was qualified to speak to people and to teach people about the benefits of knowing Jesus. That word benefit and, and the, the idea behind it are things, these benefits never run out and you can't use them up. That's what the word indicates, that's what the word means. There's a literal meaning to it. It's not like the benefits somehow run out or we somehow, you know, we're able to use them up. And we live in such a, a consumption society. I'm not surprised that we put limits on what we can consume. We've been told to. We've been told not to put a limit on what we consume to be gluttonous or frivolous. Or whatever else you want to say, wasteful. And yet with the benefits of God, it's, it's a well that never runs dry. And we can't see them that way. You know, it's, it's like when, when they were trying to figure out, how many times do you forgive somebody, Jesus? Up to seven times? And I've talked about this before, that's super generous in the world that we live in. If you were, if you were to say to somebody... Yeah, this person, they, they wronged me, so I forgave them. All right, well, good, you're a really good person for that. Well, then they wronged me again, and so I forgave them. So twice they wronged you and you forgave them. You're, you're like a saint. You're a really, really good person. Well, then they wronged me again. And, and, and so what would you do then? Well, I forgave them. You're a sucker. All right? So after the third time, you're a sucker. So seven times, you're a huge sucker. You're a patsy. You're the worst. You've got a mental problem. You like to be abused. After seven times. So they're trying to put a limit on it. Just saying. I mean, they're trying to put a limit on it, right? So, so Peter, he's saying, wow, this would be super generous. We're going to get ridiculous on Jesus here. How many times should we forgive somebody? He's probably thinking two, you know, before you become a sucker, right? And so he, he's like, I'll be really generous about it. Let's get ridiculous. I'm going to say seven. And Jesus is like, nah, 70 times seven. I mean, do you think he really meant 490 times? Or was that kind of just saying, just keep forgiving him? See, I, I think he was just saying, just keep forgiving him. I mean, I think you'd lose track after 411 times of forgiving somebody. Start over. Yeah, you'd probably lose track, and you wouldn't know. And so you wouldn't count those last ones. And I think he just meant, we just keep forgiving, that there's just a well there that never runs dry. It's, uh, yeah, you know, how, 
It just keeps going. And, and think about him. If he expects that, I mean, if he was answering Peter, right, when he said that, how many times should you forgive somebody? 70 times 70. He's talking to Peter. Peter. That's who he's talking to. Another human. They're, they're, they're standing there. 70 times 7. If that's true, if, that, if God has that kind of an expectation of us, how many times does he forgive us? I don't know. Lots. More than we can count. When does that well run out? It doesn't. We want it to, I think, because we keep making stuff up to try to make it run dry. Well, brother, what about this verse or that verse or, or these verses? And I know all the verses that people argue about it with. It's like, yeah, but the bottom line is, no matter what those verses say, no matter what it is that you're reading there, you still got to come back to Jesus and the words of Jesus when he talked to Peter. You can't ignore that. And when it comes right down to it, if I'm going to hang my hat on something that somebody says, it's going to be what Jesus says. That's what I'm going to believe. And so the writer of Hebrews might have said X, Y, or Z, or, or whoever it is might have said you know, R, S, and T, but I'm going to believe what Jesus says. And that's what he said. So how much grace is there? More than we know. Can't even figure it out. How much does God love us? It's, I don't know, it's huge. It never runs out. How long is God faithful for? He's always faithful, what do you mean? And so I want you to really kind of let that sink in a little bit because Paul is given the privilege of preaching of all those benefits of knowing Jesus and he saw it as a privilege. Because his life was changed by it. Literally changed. 180 degrees going the different direction changed. He was changed by it. And he was given a plan according to these verses. And, and I, I always, I don't know, I'm always interested in that as the plan. So when I ask people what they think of when they hear the word plan... You're going to get different answers depending on their perspective and what they're used to. Like if I was to ask, um, let me think here. Hmm. If I was to ask Aphrodite, when you hear the word plan, what do you think of? Okay, so in other words, you write out a plan, like a strategic plan somehow. And you say, okay, this is the goal that we want to get to, and so we're going to go through ten steps in order to achieve that goal. Or these ten elements, once completed, that will be achieving this goal, or leading toward the achievement of that goal. Is that what you're talking about? Yes. Okay. Yep, alright, so that's a plan. And people say that all the time. Okay, it's a plan. You know, they'll discuss what they're going to do. All right, I'll do this, you do that, you do this, you do that, you get that part, we'll meet back here in about 20 minutes. All right, it's a plan. That's a plan. All right. So, Krista, what do you think of when you hear the word plan? An approach to take care of something. Okay, like what? How... 
how are we going to resolve getting an asbestos survey done of this building? Mm -hmm. Well, I've got to call around, see who's available, who can do this job, if they'd mm -hmm. be willing to. Is it the right type of people, and how they get along? Will they get along together? So I have to, and then get them on board, get them doing the work. So you have like so a, a managerial administrative perspective. Yeah. Okay. That's a lot of factors. Layla, what do you think of when you hear the word plan? Like a drawing? Yeah. Okay. What the end result can be. All right, so what does a floor plan tell you? It's just a picture of telling you what you want to accomplish. All right. So can you build a whole house with just a plan? Like a floor plan, like a drawing? Sort of? Mostly? Okay. <laughs> All right. Materials and helping hands, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. But you can put it together. Once you have the materials you need, you can put it together based on that? Mm -hmm. Okay. All right. Match the plan, but you know. Well, yeah, it'll be close. Yeah. It'll be close. All right. So he's talking about a plan. I don't know what you want to think of with a plan. All right. It could be a drawing. It could be a, an end product. It could be uh, the pulling together of resources to accomplish. It could be a list of things. And, and the step-by-step -step process by which something is done, however you want to see it. But he talked about the plan that God had, whatever that was going to be, for us, for creation, for what he had made. He said there was a plan that had been hidden for the ages. And so through the church... What's the church? People. Yeah, the, the church, the ecclesia, is the Greek word for church. And it means the assembly. The gathering together of people. It really had nothing to do with buildings. Uh, Christians didn't really have their own buildings until it was like 300 years or more into it. So older than the United States is right now. Alright? So look out, think all the way back to George Washington with a wig on and wooden teeth. Alright? All the way to now, the church existed without buildings, really, of their own. Yeah. And so they didn't have any buildings of their own until they... Uh, they kind of co-opted the Roman Empire and they started getting buildings, which was really the beginning of the end. But it didn't, they didn't exist. And so that whole idea would be preposterous to the early church to think of the church as a building. It's just preposterous because they didn't even have buildings, not really. They would borrow buildings or they'd meet somewhere. They'd go to somebody's house or something. So they didn't have their own buildings. So the church is a gathering of people. The gathering of God's people. And so through the gathering of God's people, God ordained and he worked out. Those are two meanings of that. He created a theater. 
That's another word that's contained in that. A theater. What happens at a theater? What, or or what, what else do you do it? Yeah. Entertained. Yeah. Entertainment. Something happens there, right? And you go there to see it. It's like a spectacle. Or it can be a spectacle. But he, the, those are all words that are in there. It could be a mirror was another word in there. So four things they said that God ordained. He worked out. He created a theater or a mirror by which his plan, which, what do you want to think of his plan as? The step-by-step, the, the managerial oversight, or the floor plan? I don't care. But that his plan would be manifest or revealed. That's what he decided. But he wanted to do it through us. Why? I don't know. I don't know. It doesn't really matter, does it? If he'd wanted to do it through somebody else, he would have. If he'd wanted to do it through, I mean, you know, think about it, whoever, he could have done it through them. But he didn't. He chose not to. I think kind of interestingly, the church is a, if you think of the church as a gathering or assembling of people, it's really kind of a weirdly diverse thing where people from different cultures, backgrounds, languages, all kinds of things, we hold just certain things in common. And, and whether we're in West Africa, we're in North Africa, we are in China, whether we're in South America, Central America, wherever it is, the church is the church. And we hold something in common, certain things in common with all the people that gather in all of those places. And so God decided that if he's creating a means by which, a spectacle by which, if he was going to create a mirror by which people could look at something and say, this is the plan, this is the manifestation, this is the enlightenment this is what it's supposed to look like. This has been, from the very beginning, what he intended. That's what he intended. And so, I think it's interesting, he didn't choose a certain race of people. Now, because, it, as we know, uh, he chose, at the beginning, he chose the Jewish people. Those were his people. And yet the final manifestation, the, the actual revelation of his plan that was kept hidden is not through them. It's through us. And it's through a diversity. It's through something that reaches around the world. That's not just in one place, one location, one family, one language. It's more than that. It's, it's huger than that. It's all of us. And all of us, not just here, but all of us everywhere, that God takes and He says, this is the mirror, this is what you need to look at, this is the thing you need to gather in front of with wide wonder, and take a look at it, because this is the mystery. Here it is, and it's just us. <laughs> and that's it. Okay, let's look at a few verses. Let's look at uh, Ephesians one uh, eighteen. So I want to look that up. Pray that the eyes 
enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance and his holy people. All right, so, so that idea, he has chosen to reveal or enlighten. You know, that, that same prayer in Ephesians chapter 1, that the eyes of our hearts would be enlightened that we might see this for what it is. He's not only talking to us, he's talking to people outside of us too. Somebody look up Romans 11.33. Thank you. The next uh, series of words they use here, he says, he uses a phrase, the manifold wisdom of God. Anybody know what the word, well, I, I don't know how you would know this. The word manifold here, anybody know what that word in general means? It's part of an engine. There is an engine manifold, yeah. There's a bunch of things coming together. It can be. Yeah, you know, it's like the combining together of a bunch of things. This particular word for manifold means many colored. Many colored are many small pieces in a beautiful variety. And the idea behind this, and again, go back to what I was just talking about, how God is choosing to reveal this. He is revealing his wisdom in an infinite variety. That manifold wisdom is that, that many-colored, infinite variety that he is revealing. And how is he choosing to do that? Through a group of people who are of infinite variety. <laughs> Alright? So his manifold wisdom, his, his, his wisdom is being revealed, his many-colored wisdom is being revealed through a people who are many-colored. And of an infinite variety, a beautiful variety of people. And the only way that that can be done is through the church, because the church in and of itself, we are not only an organization, we are not only an organism, but we are a body. And whose body are we? The body of Christ. So for the body of Christ, we have an infinite variety, a manifold wisdom of God, that, that infinite variety embodied in one life, and that in Jesus. All right? Yeah, so are we back to where we started, sort of? Sort of. All right, so what I want you to understand through that is that it makes sense. That's all. Just that what he's doing makes sense, and we're the perfect people to do that, not because we're perfect people, because we're of infinite variety. We got old, we got young. We got tall, we got short. You know, we got white, we got black, we got brown, or whatever you want to call it. Red and yellow, whatever. Blue and green, I don't care. But we are of infinite variety, and because we're of infinite variety, it allows us to actually manifest the manifold wisdom of God. That you can actually see that. But that was his plan 
from the very beginning that had been hidden. That word hidden, I, I, I read this today, but that word hidden, it has it close to his chest. He had it hidden. So he says that these things are now being made known. And I, I underline the words now and being made. Which means this is a process that's ongoing. That through each generation of the church, through each uh, age of the church, whatever you want to call it, this is being made known. It was being made known for the last 2,000 years and continues to be made known. In other words, this wasn't made known all at once. But to every generation, to every uh, era of people, this is continually, be, continually being made known until when? We don't know when. All we know is that we're part of that continuing process that this is being made known. So what's our job in all this? I mean, I, this is an honest question. What's our job in all this? Whatever he tells us. Whatever he tells us. Right, because, and the reason for that is that all of this is seen in the person of Jesus. And the only way the person of Jesus is going to be seen through us is if we get out of the way. And I think Jim was talking about that. He was talking about that whole idea of, of getting out of the way of Jesus manifesting himself in and through our lives. We've got to get out of the way. And the only way that's going to happen is if we can get past our own, what, you know, our own ways, thoughts, uh, limitations, whatever they are. I don't even know. But there has to come a point in our life where we're just stepping past that and saying, Jesus, whatever. God, whatever. I mean, the pure fruit of the wisdom of God, the purest of fruit of the wisdom of God is the gospel. And that, that manifestation of it, the, the, the manifest wisdom of God, that, that infinite variety, that's what's going to come through us. And, and Paul, he describing himself as the least of all the servants and all the rest of that stuff, a perfect candidate, perfect candidate for the manifold wisdom of God to be shown through. At least one piece of it. Because his life had changed because of it. And so who is this being made manifest to? And, that, and I find this to be a, a little bit interesting too. It says, who, who are we manifesting this to? Back in, uh, back in uh, Ephesians 3. All right. All right, and I, and I think it's interesting that that's the first thing he says. He says, who is this going to be manifested to? Rulers and principalities in the heavenly places. Because, I mean, people need the gospel. We know that. And we know that our call and, and what Jesus commissioned us to do is take the gospel to the people that were around but this manifold witness, this manifold wisdom being made known, this pure fruit of the gospel, this wisdom of God, this, 
this, this wisdom that's seen in the person of Jesus being manifest through the infinite variety of the church is being revealed to spiritual rulers in heavenly places. Let's look at some of those. i got some verses here. 1 Peter 1.12 1 Peter 1.12 It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you when they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels long to look into these things. Alright. So we have a word there that Peter again he is emphasizing the revelation that came. And the revelation that comes. And the revelation that is now being made known. But at the very end of that, he mentions something that I think is really interesting. He's talking about people, people, people. And then he said, but even the angels want to see that. I wonder why. I mean, you know, to me, they'd want to see it because they're part of the plan, right? They've been a part of this plan since the very beginning, but what the end of it would be was not revealed to them. They didn't know. The end of the plan was hidden. It was hidden from everybody. Except for God had it up against His chest. He knew what it was, but He didn't share it with anybody. There was nobody that knew. I mean, you think about even Jesus when they asked Jesus, well, is this the end? Is this the time? He's like, there's certain things I don't know that only the Father knows. It's right here. And so these angels, they don't know. If you work on something and you put your time in and you put your effort in, don't you like to see the end result? I do. Especially, you know, you're building on something or you're working on something or whatever and you're putting in, you want to see. And there's a certain amount of satisfaction that comes from seeing that. If you're making a cake, don't you want to try a piece? Kim? <laughs> yeah. you, know, you know, I mean, really? If you're baking cookies, you're going to have one? Definitely. Maybe. Or, three, or four, cupcakes? Five. I think so. But you want to see it. You know, it, it's hard to just work on a piece of something and not see what it actually turns out to be. That's really difficult. I don't know if there's that many people that can really do that. That they can't, you know, see the end result of it. I think even people that work on assembly lines, you know, I think sometimes they got to really see something that they made eventually. Or the work just becomes boring and tedious and, and meaningless if you can't see it. And so I think about the angels, it's like they've been working on this a long time. And so they want to see what it looks like too. And so I think Peter threw them in there. I think, I think rightfully so. Rightfully so because they've been a part of this. And I think he was pointing out to his readers like, yeah, don't forget about them. They've been working on this and a part of this since the very beginning. They want to see. They want to know. Okay, 1 Corinthians 4 9. Somebody look that up. 
done to die in the arena. We have been made a spectacle to the whole universe, to angels as well as to human beings. All right. Now, what's he describing there? Anybody know? It's called something. If you ever saw the show Rome? A triumph. Yeah, they, they had a couple of those during that show. And a triumph was given to a leader who led the armies of Rome against an enemy and who did something really spectacular. And so what they would do is that they would bring in oddities from wherever they uh, conquered, whether it was Africa or, or wherever it happened to be that they were, they'd bring in oddities and they would parade these oddities and parade these uh, treasures and all of these other things they brought back from this land. And the last people that they would parade through there would be the king of wherever it is they came from, the leaders of where they came from. And they would parade them through last and they'd be put to death. That was a triumph. And so in ancient Rome and in these civilizations, they understood what he was talking about. It's like, you know, it seems like that we've been put on Last. Well, who's last? Yeah, they're the losers. They're going to die. They're the, the kings or the leaders of the other armies or whoever it was that were, were part of who, they, who were conquered. And he says, it just seems like in these, in these last days that, that we're being led through. Now, you think about what would be in a triumph. You'd have great uh, treasures, gold, silver, art. Uh, if there are oddities like animals. Like they might lions and tigers or a giraffe or something, something people had never seen before, a hippopotamus, if they could catch one. <laughs> Whatever it was, man, they'd just display them all. And people would stand in the streets and look at it like, oh, look at that. You know, look at what they did. They were able to conquer all this stuff. You could see it all and then last in line. Oh, there's the king. He's going to die. But it's a spectacle. It's theater. It's a distorted image of this other country that was now part of and in the middle of Rome that people could stand and stare at it as a spectacle. And it says not only the people, but also, what does he say in that verse in 1 Corinthians 4.9? Angels, yeah. Yeah, angels. Again, they're part of this. They're part of this. They're part of our daily lives. You know, and I don't really talk about angels too much, but, I mean, they're just around. And they're a part of who we are. And a part of our struggle, a part of our victory. <coughs> they're a part of our lives. And they have been from the very beginning. Okay, Hebrews 12, verse 22. Hebrews 12, 22. You have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly. All right. There's lots of angels. There's a lot of angels. I know a few of them are named off, but every now and then 
in, in some of the accounts in the scriptures, you get an idea how many there are. Like, lots. Like, uh, there was the servant of Elisha. When Elisha said, open, open his eyes, and, and he opened his eyes and he saw the, the chariots, the angels of God all around the mountain, just thousands and thousands, or you see a descriptor like this, or you hear about the heavenly host, the armies of heaven that were there at the birth of Jesus. There's a lot of angels. A, a lot. And then you got a few of them that are named by name. You hear about like Gabriel, you know that one? And Michael, you know that one? Yeah. You know. They're famous ones. But there's a lot of them that just, just lots. And it's sometimes good for us to remember that. And that part of what we're doing here and part of the work and the manifestation that we're a part of, the working out, the the theater, the mirror of God's plan that we're a part of, I mean, part of that is for them too, that they can see that. And they can have a better understanding of what God is doing and of where this is all going and, and how this is playing out. Because for thousands and thousands of years, they had no idea. Zero. Now, what other spiritual beings didn't we mention? Okay. Demons. They're around, right? The the cherubim, seraphim, they're around. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's a, a lot of different orders and and understandings of spiritual beings. But one of the things that we know uh, that they're a third of all the angels would be the demons. They're not specifically mentioned right there, but they're in heavenly realms. And also in earthly realms. And this is being played out in front of them also. What do you think the advantage of playing this out in front of them is? Of, of letting this manifest in their presence. What do you think the advantage of that is? It's like the effect of the triumph. Your defeat draws nigh. Right. It's kind of interesting that everything in our realm of who we are would appear that we're the losers and yet we're really the victorious ones. I mean, think about Jesus. Didn't he lose? I mean, in a sense. I mean, didn't, didn't uh, the, the chief priests and the elders win? Didn't Pontius Pilate win? Didn't he do what he wanted to do? Didn't the chief priests and elders get what they wanted? Isn't that exactly what happened? And so by definition, I mean by human definition, didn't Jesus lose? Well, yeah. And yet that was the greatest victory that we've ever known or could you ever see. Is that, every, that what looked like utter defeat to everybody else was ultimate victory, flawless victory for us. And for Jesus. He arose victorious over death and hell and the grave. So everything that should have been his defeat, everything that looked like defeat for him became victory. And so the spectacle that 
is the church, the spectacle of who we are, the spectacle of what everyone would see, if you look at it from human terms, may not even look like victory. It may look like defeat. And yet it's from that that ultimate flawless victory is found. So what would be the advantage? Because I mean... the demonic realms, I mean, the angels, they've been a part of this since the very beginning, and they're just seeing the manifestation of it. They're seeing the plan unfold. Well, weren't demons part of the plan too for a while? Well, yeah. Until they rebelled, until they were cast out of heaven, they were also part of that same plan. This is what they had put into. This is what they had given to. This is what they were a part of. And it's being revealed to them also. What would be the effect of, let's say, you you were working on a project, working on a project, and then you just quit. And then after a while, you see the end result. How do you feel about that? Man, I wish I stuck with it. Yeah, I mean, I mean, in a sense, you don't, you're not, you don't really share in that, do you? Because you quit. I feel like an outsider. Yeah. And I would wonder if that's the effect that it has on demons as they see it. I mean, maybe they're too far gone, maybe they're too mean, maybe they're too bitter, whatever it is demons feel, but uh, I don't know. I wonder about that sometimes. Like, here's what it was, here's what it is. This was the plan that was hidden, and it is being made manifest. And it's being made manifest through so many different facets and in so many different ways, is completely undeniable. There it is. So I, I have to wonder sometimes about that. Not too much, but a little bit. And I wonder that if, if all of the manifestation that we are bringing forth as a church, just by being the church, and that plan being revealed as the gospel goes forth through the, the singularity and the, the single-minded understanding of Jesus as that wisdom, as the ultimate fruit, the gospel being preached. I have to wonder if, if that doesn't help usher in an even greater defeat to the enemies, the spiritual enemies of God. I believe it does. I believe it produces in them an even greater and more powerful sense of their own defeat and their own mistakes. So, I think the biggest thing I want you to get out of the teaching tonight, there are a couple things I want you to get out of this. One is I want you to feel and I want you to understand that you're part of something bigger. And that you are an important part of that because you're part of, you're one of the facets, one of the many colors, one of the infinite variety that make this work. You are, as an individual. I am as an individual. And because we as individuals, 
retain ourselves as individuals, there is an even greater and more full manifestation of God's wisdom to the spiritual realms. And so I, I, I want you to retain that somehow, who you are. Uh, I, I went through a long time as a Christian with people trying to pound me into a mold. It, to look a certain way, to talk a certain way, to uh, dress a certain way, to act a certain way. And, I mean, the more I resisted, the bigger the hammer got. And, and I want to encourage you that we're doing a better job of revealing the manifold wisdom of God as an individual as a part of all of this and retaining our individuality than we would being pounded into a mold. And so I want to encourage you to retain that individuality, to hold on to it, because it, it, it creates such a bigger picture of who God is, because it, it adds to that, that variety that allows the principalities and powers and spiritual realms to see an even broader, deeper, and more robust, and have a more robust understanding of God's plan. And in turn, I think that's also manifest to the world that we live in. I just think it's harder for them to see it. I mean, we're going to preach the gospel to them, we're going to speak the good news to them. We've been given a privilege, just like Paul was given a privilege, to share the benefits of knowing Jesus. And the way that we're going to share those benefits of knowing Jesus is mainly through the fact that we are ultimately qualified to share that because of the change that God made in our lives. And we are qualified to do it. But in the midst of all that, the theater of our lives together is a huge spiritual witness into the heavenly realms. So I hope you can be encouraged by that. I really do. If you're struggling, anybody here struggling to figure out why that's important? Or you kind of get it? Yes, no. Simple. Complicated. Simple. No. Simple. Simple? Alright. Alright, does it give you a bigger picture as to the importance of all of us together? Alright, because that's that's kind of what I was trying to do. Because yeah. I think Paul placed himself into a bigger picture there. He's like, Yeah, I'm called to do this. But I'm called to do this in the context of this humongous worldwide picture of people. It's really hard to be a superstar in an infinitely in an infinite variety, isn't it? It's like, how are you a superstar? Are you the brightest color red? You know? I don't know. 
It just seems silly. It's like there's, if there's an infinite variety, we're just all in this together. And we just do our part. All right, any questions or comments? Reminded me of a verse that you referenced before, I think. Uh, I don't know where it is, but it's all the heavenly hosts around looking down, seeing, seeing I don't know, like it, sort of like a, almost like they were above the Coliseum looking down. It was one that I referenced when? I don't remember. Mm-hmm. Not tonight? Not tonight. No. I mean, you sort of described it, but there was another specific verse that described that. Right. Maybe on the leader's retreat. Okay. I don't remember. I can see what I can find, though. I also thought it was a good <clears throat> picture of like the big picture, to remember that we're part of the big picture. Because a lot of times when we get stuck, it's like we become narrow-minded or narrow in our sight and stuck and the enemy's pounding. You know, we're all snarled up. But right. Then, but if we can remember that we actually are part of something bigger. Right. And it's valued and it's purposed by God and it's you know, ordained and colorful and all that. Right. And it can us. <coughs> It's hopeful. It's relieving. Good. Anybody else? Thank you, Kim. And how it kind of ties into just a little nugget from yesterday's teaching, too. Not being, not looking at what people see, but what God sees. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> And I think sometimes it's important for us to begin to shift our perspective as to what God sees too. And let that happen in our lives. It doesn't happen all at once, but I think it can happen over time. I think it also makes it feel better about being a freak show. Right. (laughs) Right, right. Part of the plan, brother. <laughs> One of us. <laughs> I never really thought of like, I guess angels or spiritual beings being so like intertwined. Like that, I guess, I don't know, I guess that close of a relationship with them where, yeah, I guess seeing that connection up with a bigger plan with them rather than just them independently acting in the spirit realm that we can access, but I guess it's a whole picture of seeing that together. It's something bigger. Well, I think, I think too, once we can start thinking of ourselves as spiritual beings that have physical bodies, mm-hmm. uh, it helps us to begin to explore the idea that God is spirit, and they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. So as we're spiritual beings, our work with other spiritual beings that are different than us, but still spiritual. Because when it comes right down to it, I mean, what's going to last? It's not our bodies. So 
the the normal state of being apparently in how God created or who God is as a spirit is spirit. And so uh, in order for any flesh to live, uh, at least as people, God breathed into the ground to create a living being. So in other words, spirit was the key component of even bringing any kind of physical body to life from the very beginning. So as a spiritual being, I think it's... uh, yeah, I think it's important for us to see ourselves that way. And so that work with other spiritual beings just kind of makes sense that we have certain spiritual beings that we're working with, that they have been working with us this whole time, and we're working together for the same purpose. And then we've got other spiritual beings that are working against what we're trying to do. So, But we're all occupying basically the same space. So depending on how much you can see of that or sense of that or know of that, you know, that then that doesn't how much you're gonna be able to see that or, or experience it in the same space and time. Yeah. I think I found the one Kim was thinking of from your teaching September twenty first, twenty fifteen. When Hebrews twelve with the great cloud of witnesses the word picture like a stadium where people watch the gladiators when he was 12. Thank you, Layla. Thanks, Layla. Was that it? I think so. Okay. <clears throat> All right, any other comments, questions? pretty convinced the demons around me actively work against my printers in my office. Yes. <laughs> yes. Whenever there's a deadline, they go down. Hmm. Yeah, I don't even pretend to know the ways <laughs> how they work. Maybe if you prayed for angels to surround the printers <laughs> before there's deadlines, you'd yes. see a difference in that. <laughs> Keep it spiritual, you know. <laughs> All right, let's pray. Father, thanks for uh, just uh, who we are in you. We thank you for our place in the work that you're doing. We thank you for our part in what you're doing and our part in the plan that you've had since the very beginning. And so, God, we just take our place in that. We thank you that you have qualified us to talk about uh, the benefits of what it means to know you because our lives are different now than they were before. Our lives are changed. Our lives have taken on new direction. Our lives have taken on new purpose since we've known you. And so you have qualified us, really speaking to people's lives. And, and as we go about in obedience what you have for us, the, the beautiful, multicolored, multifaceted, infinitely diverse manifestation of your wisdom that we're part of. We want to say thanks for that, God. 
We find rest and peace. Thanks. In Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Uh, thanks for coming, everybody.